Hello. Uh, I've had quite a busy time. Um, missed last week because I was at Thought Bubble, the big comic convention in Leeds, which I always bang on about when it happens because it's sort of the it's the Christmas of comics um, in my calendar, and uh, we had a very nice time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, every time I get the impression that you go there and you you're just happy. Yeah, I, I mean, I go there under duress, sort of. Not because of anything to do with Thought Bubble, which I know is an absolutely wonderful place. Purely because I have to go anywhere under duress. I never want to leave my home, and uh, it, it's really difficult for me to get enthusiastic about travel. But um, Thought Bubble is one of those things where I know it's going to be so good that it's worth doing it and that I'll have a lovely time. Um, this time, tempered slightly by the fact that I was going on my own. Um, Abby couldn't get the week off work. For reasons that make total sense, um, which is that basically... Even though to Abby, um, Thought Bubble is a working day and it's an important day on the working calendar. Um, to everyone else at the comic shop, they just want to go to it. They're all they all they all like comics and they want to go to Thought Bubble. So the fact that Abby's been every single year presumably has been weighing on somebody. And so uh, this time they're like, well, you haven't got a new comic out, so this is the year that that someone else goes, and that's what they did. So that makes sense. It hurt a bit. Abby was very sad, but it's like, yeah, it makes sense logically. Um, but it meant that I had to uh, <clears throat> I had to learn how to do it myself. I'm not good at manning the stall on my own. I've never been able to. I famously can't do maths, and uh, handing out change constitutes maths. Um, and in, yeah, I, I actually kind of screwed it up at, ver at first, but then very quickly uh, I learned how to do it. So I, I don't need Abby anymore. So there we go. The <laughs> she, last vestiges of our relationship. <laughs> she's been obsoleted. No, I, I, <laughs> I very much missed Abby being there, and uh, and she very much missed being there, and it's it's tricky because I don't want to uh, talk to her too much about it because it's a, just a really great social event, and to miss out on that is a shame. Uh, but hopefully, I w acted as some sort of emissary, and people kind of assumed that she was attached to it, so it counts as a social situation for her as well. Who knows? <laughs> So, before we get to talking about the tedious subject that we spent hours on that isn't Dragon Age or Witcher, but there's <laughs> another sci-fi huge uh, thing that we keep bringing up over and over, let's talk about other things that are tedious and people talk about it excessively. So, Good idea. Uh, this week, uh, everyone talked about the Telltale Games uh, shutting down. And oh uh, yeah, that that one happened while I was away, um, <clears throat> and it look maybe you're less naive than me, but it came as a big surprise to me. Yeah, it came as a surprise to me as well because they've been so successful. But p then I saw charts of oh. uh, uh, how many people bought their games on Steam over time. And it's yes, the <laughs> now that's the thing. That's the thing. Telltale Games. I realized I was I, I, I contributed to this because I've always. And this is similar to how I am with Wadget Eye, right? I've always been happy their games are out there, but it's never really quite been. Like, I haven't got round to the point where my list of priorities reaches them. Um, and now, in the case of Wadget Eye, I've bought their games anyway. In the case of Telltale, I did not. Yeah, and uh, the difference here is that uh, Wadget Eye, their level of quality in their titles is going up all the time. Whereas with mm. Telltale... Every subsequent game is, since uh, Walking Dead has just been worse and worse, and their re reputation just gets worse. So, <coughs> right? When, Do you when... know? I, I didn't. 
you're right, but I hadn't noticed that you were right. I never quite tuned into the fact that their reputation was getting worse because I guess I don't know. I guess I I always just thought of them still as the people who did that really good Walking Dead game. The problem is this is a double edged sword because even if people like me who would buy their games without really thinking about it, if you know, obviously I didn't, but you know there are people who would um, purely based on the um, reputation of their first Walking Dead game. Um, the the reputation of the Walking Dead has been going down. That's the problem. Like the franchise, and it and it's it's interesting actually that um, in the comics, um, which of course you know were running a long time before the TV series, there was a particular point in the story where everyone I know who was really into the Walking Dead stopped reading it because they were revolted with what the story had chosen to do. Um, and as far, and, and I was very interested to see what would happen when the TV series caught up with that moment. Presumably they would not adapt it uh, directly and would come up with something else. And no, they directed it, they adapted it directly. And sure enough, the reputation of the series plunged. And I've just not heard any talk about it ever since. And so for Telltale, for that to be the thing that they're attached to... Um, and for their actual work since then, because now would be the time to reevaluate and go like, what about what have they made since then? Oh, this one was great. This one was great. Unfortunately, no, that was always their best loved one. Yeah. And it's a shame, was, isn't it? Yeah. That, that was five years ago. <laughs> yeah. And they put out stuff every year. Maybe yeah. multiple uh, seasons of episodic games every year. And um, yeah, the sales have been plummeting. And like, when Vegeta put out their most recent game, Unavowed, it sold by far the best any of their games have done. Oh, really fast. It like smashed all their expectations. So they've been putting up better and better stuff and have like, been accumulating a, a larger, more enthusiastic fan base and just yeah. really paid off here. Whereas Telltale, they were way too industrial in their production of titles for example the warning signs that their model didn't work should have gone off years ago because when walking dead season one came out like all the writers on it left the company after the game <laughs> oh i didn't realize that <laughs> yeah that is a for for a because correct me if i'm wrong but their sort of game is the writing is the main thing in it yes they're basically point-and-click adventure games with the point-and-click mechanics pared down to the most bare minimum. So you have yeah. some walking around and clicking and solving puzzles, but it's so simple. It It's just get going through the motions of like, here's yes, an opportunity to save the game before the next cutscene. <laughs> you could even argue that they're a branching off of visual novels as much as anything else. Yeah, they were coming from point-to-click adventure games, so they still Absolutely feel they were, more yeah. anchored to it because they started out with like Sam and Max and stuff like that. Yeah, and uh, they went more in the kind of visual novel direction. But point, the quality of the stories in Telltale games has been worse than other point-to-click adventure games. So they leaned heavier on the story, but didn't have the quality of writing to back it up. So if mm. you wanted to have like just a good story in a point-and-click kind of format, Telltale weren't the best at it. No. So you should just go and play like a modern point-and-click adventure game if you want a narrative game. 
And yeah. the key to it would be to have like a strong writing staff, but they were unable to retain them because apparently they had the uh, the style of production too close to like a AAA game where it's like yeah. just hours and hours of overtime and like burning through uh, staff that just left and then hiring new low paid talent and yeah well, the problem that i think they had is that that part of the success of the walking dead was that um oh how do i put this i don't think the the big success of the walking dead was necessarily tied to like gamers hmm. from what i saw it was people surprised like people who'd bought an ipad maybe for the first time because yes. they were becoming cheaper and who had seen Walking Dead on TV, didn't really necessarily think of it as a comic, but just knew of it as a thing, and then were surprised that their their iPad could do this new storytelling thing. It was for people who basically like they were going through the experience that we had playing the earlier point-and-click adventures. We all had that moment when we're like, oh, wow, Like my computer can tell a story. Um, for me, it was Simon the Sorcerer. For a lot of people, it was you know Monkey Island, and before that, Maniac Mansion, things like that. Um, I think people went through that experience and that was a lot to do with the success of Telltale Games, especially since it was really one of the earliest like iPad games that anyone kind of took seriously as the iPad as a platform. And then that they've not been surprised by that anymore. They're like, yeah, we've had that experience now. Um, yep. And yes. they've moved on. One of the things that nerds do and that I absolutely do um, that I think normal people don't do is that when we see a new medium we go, great, a new medium. Uh, whereas other people go, great, this particular thing. And then and then if the, like when, the, when it moves on and there's a new equivalent of that, it's like, oh, what, this passe old thing? Whereas some of us are going, no, we need a wadget eye. Keep making point-and-click games, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so they, they didn't focus enough on the core foundation of like why someone should give a shit kind of outside the novelty of the um, premise. And they just kept Putting yeah. up the same stuff. Like the last thing I played from them was the Game of uh -huh. Thrones game, and yeah, the story in the Telltale Game of Thrones was so bad that I stopped reading the books and stopped watching the TV series. <laughs> it just repelled me from the entire franchise. I mean, yeah, you know, here's another problem that that Telltale Games had, which is that. As they got more successful, apparently, you know, I guess they didn't, but as they thought they did, they they did up the production quality a bit. And I think that was to their detriment because it, what they ended up, what they started making was this fascinating new medium to, to other people, right? And what they ended up making was like slightly dodgy animated series that you, the, the, that you clicked your way through. And I think that the the sort of the 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 group I'm talking about who discovered um, Telltale through The Walking Dead and who discovered the concept of like point and click gaming or even just gaming through that game, which a lot of people did, those people by that time were going like, well, I don't just want to watch a cartoon of Game of Thrones. And I think that might be how they saw it. And I think that you know basically Telltale had too many games out. Yeah, and uh, they didn't do anything interesting with like story structure or anything like if you want a fantasy game with like really ambitious story structure and branching plot there's the witcher yeah like 
nothing Telltale made comes even close to like Witcher Three or Witcher Two. Well, no, well, no, of course. Although I don't think you can expect a normal person to play any Witcher game. It's a, it's way too gamey, even the third one. Yeah. Although I tell it's you what, possible we... Witcher Three has sold better than any Telltale game. Well, yeah. Would we have been interested? I wonder. In a post-Witcher Netflix TV series, Telltale game about The Witcher. Would gamers have accepted that at all? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be really well written. And Telltale just, after all their talents, (laughs) their real talent, left. Like, the people who made Firewatch are people who wrote some of the episodes of, like, season one of Walking Dead. Oh, and and then they left, and then they made Firewatch, or the other way around. Uh, yeah, they they left and made Firewatch, and that, that game makes a is lot of sense. yeah. Uh, just like yesterday, I saw someone praising a piece of storytelling in Firewatch. What was it? Oh yeah, oh I know. It was that there's a the woman that you're talking to on the phone keeps complaining that there's a there's a sign that's like slightly silly. Uh, it's the name of a lake or something, and people keep stealing the sign because it's got a slightly silly name. And she's complaining about this. And then, uh, unremarked upon, when you climb up her tower, she's got the sign hanging up on the wall. So evidently she stole it as well. What a nice little bit of storytelling that is. Yeah. I- imagine if uh, Telltale had uh, yeah. done something like that. Because yeah. you know, Firewatch is a <laughs> narrative game. <laughs> it's kind of the same genre as Telltale. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't... I don't think it's a great loss to have them shut down well, because it's not. Well, no, yeah. it's not a great loss to us. The problem that, of course, is that it is a great loss to all the people who suddenly lost their jobs, and and it has been not surprising in the least, but you know, disappointing to yet again see gamers this week go like m- mostly care about getting another Walking Dead game or whatever it is, rather than caring about the the lives upended by this sudden loss of work. Um, yeah, but the, I, I, I can, I can see why someone like just accept it. Yeah, of course they lost their jobs because they went bankrupt. That's what happens when a company loses up. But I also wonder, like they bought and paid for the episodes already, so they wanted. Oh, really? Yeah, they're already selling it and put out like uh, the first episode of Walking Dead season three. Oh, I didn't know that. that yeah, does. Oh, that does shake things up a bit. Yeah, I'm still. I'm, I mean, I'm still way more on the side of the people losing their jobs, but... Yeah, the, uh, it's just that they're, is... they're going on at the same time, so... Yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised that people are, like, wondering, like, okay, so now what? <laughs> yeah, suddenly I'm... Yeah, the story does change a bit in my head. Now mm. I think that there ought to be some kind of a... Well, a refund. Obviously, they don't have the funds for that, but that's sort of not my problem. I think they should. I think they should be paying the staff because because th- there was some problem where they didn't get their ordinary severance pay or something, right? Yeah, they, there was like a month, two months of pay that they hadn't got. So there's their owed back pay and their owed severance yeah. that they weren't given. And they also broke against the local label, labor laws because they're supposed to be given like 50 days advance notice because the company had... It was like there were more than 100 people working there. And if you have more than 100 employees, you have to give them uh, a long advance notice. And they didn't do any of that. 
Sorry. No, and it seems as if they would have known. What this reminds me of is those documentaries about um, ocean software. You know the the uh, the old ZX Spectrum and so on company, and there's the footage of their offices being raided by bailiffs and people going, "Well, can I just go in and get my bag?" And them going, "No, this is now property we're going to seize." Like that's what this reminds me of. In, in fact, it's very similar because here we have what was ostensibly a successful company at what appeared to be the top of their game. But who behind the scenes must have known, must have known that they, for a while, that they were at the point where they couldn't possibly pay their staff or that their projected plans weren't working. And they must have known that they were only making those projected plans in a desperate attempt to turn things around. Yeah. Basically, the leadership was awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And- they should have seen years ago that there was a problem with their formula and that they should maybe try to do something different here. But instead, it's like, no, let's run this shit into the ground and uh, just crash and burn in a spectacular fashion where like customers are left wondering where their game is, if they can get a refund. The people who worked on it are wondering, okay, so... Why did we have to work overtime and then suddenly, without advance notice, be fired and not get our money? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's multiple levels of oh, Telltale, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I wonder what Telltale... What could they have done? Because... It, now, I'm, a, I'm not on their side, but imagine this from the perspective of that leadership for now. That Those guys must have... They had ideas that sounded pretty solid. For example, our company isn't going very well, and and let's imagine that it hadn't been going well for a while. Let's do a Minecraft game, right? That is a guaranteed hit, and that's what they did. Why didn't that save them? Um, Hey, Game of Thrones, probably the most popular nerd franchise in the world. Let's do that. Didn't work. Now, in that case, we know why. It was because the, the writing was bad. But, like... I don't know, just purely on pre-sales alone, you would expect it would have helped. So they were having ideas that from the outside appear like, you know, the sort of thing they ought to have been doing. But it didn't work. Yeah, because uh, the, they weren't innovating their formula enough. They were just yeah. like, here's the framework and exactly how we did the other ones. The way to do story, the way to do the game stuff and everything. It's like... and wasn't good enough. They got away with it for like one game, but then it's just they should should well, should have been way more ambitious with their games instead of just the innovating in the licenses. <laughs> yes, and I would say I would I would defend them to an extent by saying that my memory of the uh, the Walking Dead's uh, success because of course they already existed. They they'd done Bone before that, and like I think Wallace and Gromit. Um, so they were around. Oh, and, and Monkey Island. So they, as Sam and Max. Yeah. So they've been around for a while. The Walking Dead, the reason why th- that was the one was A, the, the, the other audience that I was talking about, but B, they did, they did innovate with the, uh, this character will remember this mechanic. And yep. I remember a lot of excitement about that at the time. And so, so arguably that is why among gamers, as well as picking a franchise they were into, um, that is arguably the, the the successful factor about that game was that they innovated in that way. So the answer then is you have to innovate with a new concept like that, with a way of moving on the adventure game genre with some new big concept each time. And instead, yeah, no, they didn't. They just did 
well, now we'll do this franchise. Yeah, and I, I think they should have done original titles. Like, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll never know, will we? Yeah, like, Life is Strange is yep. a game of this type, very successful, millions yep. of copies sold, and yep. it was an original, original IP. Ugh. No, but yeah, but it, okay, yeah, yeah, but it was. And it was also, and it was an original IP that also, um, Honestly, tapped into a new a new audience again in the in the way that Walking Dead did. Yeah, Life is Strange, and I say this not as a pejorative, right? You know that I wouldn't use SJW as an insult, but that that sort of new gaming crowd that was emerging, like you know, essentially in the flames of Gamergate, they were kind of coming out and going, "Well, we do want games." That game was an early game that appealed to that crowd because it was about this teenage girl and her school issues and so on and it kind of i wouldn't say that it's specifically at people who are like politically involved in like games and stuff it's more like no but it did no it did appeal to them and it came in at that time because there's been other game series that have had a different demographic than Mm -hmm. like the sims for example has had a distinctly different uh, demographic from uh, something with uh, Mountain Dew uh, tie-in marketing. And I think that this was, again, kind of revealing that there are people interested in playing games in the millions if there's Mm -hmm. just a game that has a different thematic subject, different kind of location, different kind of aesthetic and everything. And, uh, yeah, I don't think... uh, just saying, like, Social Justice Warriors, that label on it is kind of accurate for the mm-hmm. kind of person who looks at it and finds it appealing. Like, uh, You know what? Actually, yeah. yeah, and I've realized that the only reason I said that was because I haven't played the game, and it mm. was those people through which I heard about that game. So, yeah, there's there, there was an audience among them, but uh, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't go as far as to imply that it was, like, made for them or anything. But what it was made for was... Like, yeah, people, as you say, who are interested in a, a wider range of things. And it was made for um, female gamers um, as yep. a representation piece for that. Again, I made that sound too political, but you know what I mean? Here, here is your life. Play a game of it. Went down very well. Yeah, because you can just look at, like, okay, TV series. There's a huge audience for stuff that it's not people, uh, like, smashing someone with an axe into the skull. <laughs> it's just people having interpersonal drama with uh, comparatively low stakes. So why don't we try making an adventure game of that genre? And it's like, oh, and then a cer- and then a certain amount of I, I understand. I haven't played it, but mm. I understand there's a certain amount of timey travely oddness to it. Which I, I sort of, um, from what I have seen of it, maybe I need to get around to playing it. But it seems like a sort of almost like a reboot of so, not not a reboot of it itself. But a reboot of what made Donnie Darko popular, <laughs> where oh. it's a sort of like here is a here is a kind of like indie alternate teenage life plus a bit of science fiction. Um, yeah, that's what it feels like to me. Definitely inspired by it. Oh, is it? Yeah. Although uh, I haven't. Seen yeah, I fancy it. that. I, I've even I downloaded the free one that they brought out in between games like a couple of months ago, and and never so much as loaded it up. Yep. It's very nice looking. The free one. Yeah, because they they updated their graphics engine and they have a really good sense for aesthetics and uh, where to put the camera and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they've improved their writing and uh, their voice acting and stuff. So 
So, and the first episode of uh, the second season, which is actually, it's an all new story. It's yeah. different characters, different setting. I haven't played it, but uh, it's uh, essentially the second season in the same way as like True Detective. The second season was the second season of it. <laughs> it's more yeah. like a thematic connection than a, a direct story connection. Anyway. Anyway, so I'm I'm just fine with like other people have taken up the torch. Like you, you can get the same kind of stuff from other people, and it's just the management was so bad. It's a, yeah, I'm fine with it. I, I I want the people who work there and have some kind of passion for this to just start their own Telltale like company and not hire anyone who ran Telltale. <laughs> Yeah, uh, or or alternatively, for the new Life is Strange to do well enough that they can basically hire everyone <laughs> from Telltale who is good to work on their next thing. Yeah, the problem with that is that uh, I think Telltale is an American company and the people ah. who make Life is Strange is uh, French people in Paris. So ah. they'd have to move. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So a new hardcore history came out, and it's not a normal hardcore history, because uh, hardcore history episodes are like, uh, I don't know, five to nine hours long. (laughs) Yeah. And this is on a different uh, YouTube, uh, different uh, podcast channel. Uh, It's Hardcore History Addendum is the channel, and uh, this is the fifth episode of the Addendum channel, and it's called Nightmares of Indianapolis, and it's about a ship, the USS Indianapolis, that was transporting parts for the uh, nuclear warheads in at the end of uh, the Second World War. So they were on the secret mission in the Pacific when they were sunk by Japanese torpedoes. And sorry, they... sorry, Japanese or what? Torpedoes. Oh, okay, okay. Yep, carry on. Yeah, torpedoes. They sink ships. Yep, they do. Yep. So uh, they they were sunk and they were on a secret mission, so no one knew they were out there. So the sailors were horribly injured in the ship sinking and were sitting in uh, comfortably temperature water for four days while they were all attacked by sharks. Okay. Hundreds of them. <laughs> okay. I, I Honestly, I would probably succumb... To one shark in one day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is just the uh, top of the list of Dan Carlin's uh, worst places you could possibly visit in all of human history. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. What a great situation this is. Yes, because it's uh, in the ocean. It's pitch dark, and you can't. You're floating there. You can't see anything, and. There's endless ocean below you. Even without the sharks, it would be horrible. But there's yeah. hundreds of sharks. And they're just attacking <laughs> relentlessly day and night. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's great. <laughs> the episode, not the experience. No, indeed. Did, did. Well, I was going to ask if any of them survived. Presumably, yes, or we wouldn't know. Yes, they did. It took uh, four days, four and a half days, but... Uh, some planes flew by and noticed, why the hell are there, like, over a thousand sailors here in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> and then they f- 
sent rescue, but it would take 12 hours for the rescue ships to arrive. And the people who were flying the planes noticed that there were literally hundreds of sharks just circling around and like attacking the sailors. And yeah, the pilots felt pretty bad about the situation. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Yep. And the people who were in the sea, they couldn't, they had no provisions like they couldn't drink the water because it was salt water but people yeah. eventually kind of went mad so they were tr like intentionally either like drinking the water and knowing that it would kill them but they just wanted to die they didn't want to be there anymore right <laughs> yeah so yeah i recommend it it's great <laughs> okay <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anything we talk about from now on will just be feel strange. So, uh, you watched Black Panther and Infinity War. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it was a while ago now. Um, we were going to talk about it, what, three weeks ago or something? Yeah. So, uh, the memory isn't fresh. So, all I can say really is that they were good. Um, yeah, finally watched them. Way behind the cultural curve there. But I had got to a point where I. I had got to a point where I felt as if the statement of Marvel movies had now been adequately made to me. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I no, didn't really... It, I, I was long past the point of feeling as if I needed to see any of them anymore. Um, except for the one detail that they now had Spider-Man in them. And that was the reason I went to see uh, the, the one he was introduced in, uh, uh, Civil War. Mm. And honestly, I wanted to watch Infinity War, and that's why I watched Black Panther, because it was one of the films that I had heard you kind of should watch in order to watch Infinity War. So yeah, so I did. So I watched Black Panther. That was a good film. Like, it's difficult really for me to say anything, because it, they were good films. Yeah, I mean, uh, people were raving about Black Panther, but then I watched it and was a bit disappointed because it was just fine. It was perfectly serviceable, but it didn't blow my socks off or anything it was just yeah that, that was that's that good enough i guess but it's like i don't get the hype this wasn't the kind of movie that really excited me uh so and then i watched infinity war and uh, i kind of came in with dampened expectations because black panther kind of let me down after the overwhelmingly yeah. positive response but i really enjoyed the infinity war yeah i thought it was as good as the other most overhyped uh, uh, Marvel movies, the uh, uh, Captain America two and uh, the yep. um, the other one that those guys made, I, I felt it successfully uh, held created high stakes that felt believable. There was a good amount of tension in the story all the time, and there were like a million characters, but it, it managed managed to create scenes where it actually gave a shit about what was going on. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think it felt crowded with no. all those characters. Um, and they uh, they very sensibly basically broke them up into teams so that whenever whenever like one of the teams appeared on screen, it was a pleasant surprise. You kind of went, oh, yeah, those guys as well. Um, and and like the, the, the memorable one of that is like when the Guardians of the Galaxy turn up. But I'm just talking about like when there's like two times in the film where Captain America shows up and you go like, oh, yeah, hooray. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I really disliked Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. So when I saw them in Infinity War and liked them, it was like, oh yeah, you can actually make a good movie with these characters. So here's one, and I hope that everything that happens to them 
is actually permanent in uh, future Guardians films. If that's well, it going... isn't, is it? That's the thing. That that brings us to the other thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of the chat uh, surrounding this film is about how emotional it is. I did not feel that. The or at least the the parts that were supposed to be sad to me weren't because I just don't for a moment believe that any of the deaths in the film will last more than the opening scene of the next movie. Yeah, and I'm hoping that the uh, the ones that were given a lot of drama, yeah, uh, like the Guardians character who uh, yeah. was killed off, that absolutely should be permanent. Otherwise, it feels like it just undermines the drama of what happened in this. Whereas yeah. all the other deaths that were just very sudden and unexpected and felt like an arbitrary, oh, let's just kill off this character. Uh, reverse all of those, fine. But not, not the other ones that were... Yeah, I, I know exactly yeah. what you mean, and I thought you were going to say that. And if anyone yeah. hasn't seen it, what we're talking about is the difference between like de- deaths that happen during the film and then just like cliffhanger deaths that happen magically quite near the end. Mm. Um, those are the ones which 100% absolutely for definite are going to be reversed and we know they are because those characters have more films in the works um but also because of it's a marvel film but yeah there, there's at least one and now i'm struggling to remember presumably there are more but there's at least one death that's like yeah this whole thing it, it, it none of this story would work if this character does not die at this point and it really happened and it's real and it's not magic and it's real but i still just don't think that they will make it last because it's Guardian. Like, arguably, Guardians of the Galaxy is honestly one of their stronger IPs that they have. And to just like chuck out one of not just one of the main characters. Look, switch off if you've not watched this film. The female character from Guardians of the Galaxy cannot be dead in the next Guardians of the Galaxy. I know there's a new female character, but she's never been, including in this, put forward as a main one. And it's like, no, they, you can't have Guardians of the Galaxy without is it zoe saldana is that her name yeah you can't do it so you can't do it so no she's not dead but she is but she is i agree completely 100 percent, not magically fully dead and and yeah that's what i'm talking about that's what i'm talking about the 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 by being a marvel film it undermined those moments um yeah because, there's such yeah. a huge specter of the comic book bullshit if you want to be authentic to the Nothing is allowed to happen permanently to these characters ever again after their introduction. You're gonna have to just uh, reset everything that happened here. Otherwise, how yeah. how can you keep churning out more entries in the franchise with these beloved characters that their story is never allowed to end? But this because her relationship to like Thanos has been like mentioned in the Guardians movies. This feels like it should be the end for her. <laughs> What more yeah. is there to her story after this? <laughs> in which in which case, I'm still against uh, I'm still against the way it was done because it means that her actual proper meaningful death was like a needle in a haystack of meaningless deaths. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Um, and so yeah, I I don't think that will last, and I, and I'll like I'll be disappointed whether it does or doesn't. Now, what I will believe is in the next part. Having come back to life, and I, can't, I actually now can't remember who who died at the end, but like, let's assume they like, imagine they all did. Having come back to life, um, if Iron Man dies in the next film, I'll believe that. If Captain America dies in the next film, I'll believe that. And yeah. the reason, and 
Um, does the same go for Hulk? Not sure. Does the same go for Thor? Not sure. But the reason why those two in particular is that Captain America and Iron Man, first off, they are the two characters who represent the first wave of the Marvel films. And so to kill them off would genuinely move the story on. But also, in real life, Robert Downey Jr. is an aging actor. And of course, you know, you can't do the thing in these films that you can do in comics, which is just keep them alive perpetually. He will have to go at some point. Robert Downey Jr. in particular, because he's the oldest member of the cast, I imagine. Mm. Um, so I think he will die in the next one and it will be real and it will be permanent and it will be good and it will move the story on. I kind of think that they might do the same to Captain America, even though he's nowhere near as old, just because... Well, I assume he... I don't know. I don't know their ages, but I assume so. Uh, just because he's another tentpole character who always has been kind of the uh, Iron Man's opposite in some way, especially after Civil War. Um, but Zoe Saldana isn't like that. She's like a fresh-faced new actor. Um, we've hardly known her for five years. Uh, actually, I think, it's, I think it's been more than ten, but, you know, we've not known her for long. And... Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it feels like, uh, for, for a lot of those characters, yeah, this is going to be like, the next part is the ending for the uh, for many of the cast of uh, this first wave of these films. And I feel like yeah. it, it, it is a, a great ending point for me to stop watching these movies. <laughs> it feels like this, it's all been leading up to this with all stupid stones and everything. So once this is over, I can just stop watching them and it's like all the other and it gets current Marvel series where it's like, well, I see you made some new ones. It's the same as the old ones. So who cares? <laughs> Good, great for the fans. For everyone yeah. else, I'll just, well, I'll just do something else like I've been doing for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. For me, it all depends on what they do for the next generation. Because I've got to say, I'm a bit more excited about the next generation than I was from the previous one. Because I've always, and I think I've said this before on this show, I've always felt that the fact that... Oh, I know. It was when we were talking about the Spider-Man movie. Uh, the fact that... The, the upcoming animated one. The fact that they have been making these faithful Marvel adaptations that make aging nerds very happy and make kids very happy because of these films but the aging nerds like them because they're accurate to the legacy characters and they're very good uh, representations of those stories from 40 years ago up to 20 years ago say being put on screen the next wave though is going to be what's going on right now or at least more recently so we're getting captain marvel i think before we get infinity war part two i'm not sure about that but i think we are yeah and she's like a current character. She's a recent character. Um, not 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 Captain Marvel, the title, but the one, the woman, Ca Captain Marvel, is a fairly recent, comparatively recent character. If we get Kamala Khan, if we get Miles Morales as Spider-Man, if we get Spider-Gwen showing... Do you know what I mean? There are ways that the next uh, load of characters may be more interesting than the current ones because they are current comics being adapted into films um and i would be interested in that in a general sense so i may start i may sorry i may keep watching because of that uh, there may be they i don't know i feel as if the films have the scope to be more interesting rather than less moving on but yes it's a very useful jumping off point for those of us who do decide well we get it now 
Yeah, I, I feel like the problem with even the newer ones is that they are in some way faithful to the old style of comic book thing, whereas that, yeah. like, oh, here's an interesting character. What will we do with the character? Oh, they'll fight ninjas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. One of the one of the things that we, we so we've been playing a lot of this new Spider-Man game. Abby's been playing it more than I have. She's further uh, because she's just coming down off a lot of uh, freelance work and she's got some free time. So she's really resting. Uh, and uh, oh, and also she uh, she was off work with a cold yesterday. Mm. Uh, so she's been playing that a lot. And one of the things that she's observed about it is that the the way they handle the story uh, is really interesting. I, have you still not played it? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. Well, the way that they handle the story is that they start off with Spider-Man already having existed for eight years, but he's only really got one enemy, and that is the Kingpin. Uh, and so, really, he's only fighting against, you know, general organized crime, the the, the really wacky stuff. Uh, oh no, that's wrong. I was going to say it hasn't started. It has because you keep hearing references to Vulture and stuff. So, okay, t- I take that back. But generally speaking he's living in a fairly um ordinary world and the story gradually moves you the player towards being able to accept the supervillain. so um where i am in the story uh, norman osborne who we all know as the green goblin from the films if we don't read the comics um he's the mayor he's just the mayor and he doesn't appear to be the green goblin um dr octopus is actually uh not dr octopus yet and he's Peter Parker's employer. So the game is quite cleverly telling you, you know what's going to happen. You know this guy is going to be this villain. This guy is going to be that villain. But don't worry about that for now. We're doing this for now. And later on, we will impress you with the origin story of these characters. Well, as it moves on, it starts to, in a really intelligent way, weave these characters together into the same world as each other. And and, and Abby uh, expressed this to me in a way that's probably going to be better than I can repeat now. But... Basically, it's, it, it is doing what the films do or ought to do if they don't, which is looking at this whole world that was built out of like random ideas put forth by random different writers with no greater, in many cases, uh, master plan than to make this month's issue. And it's looking back over the fact that we have years of this and people take continuity seriously and want all of these characters to persist. And it's going, OK, what one story, roughly, could we make up? that ties all these characters in where they all actually make sense don't crowd it out how can we reimagine this to make sense the problem is that superhero comics don't have that format they are made out of these these random ideas that crunch together and unfortunately i'm at the point where i feel like that with the films they are there's so many of them now and and they're a, they're a bit of a muddle and i've never been satisfied with the way Infinity War was led up to. Mm. Um, I, I always thought that they brought these stones in in a in a very haphazard way and in a way that yes. didn't really look as if it was properly planned. Yeah, it's a it's a remarkable achievement what they've done, but could have been better. It ain't great. I can't remember why I'm talking about that a little bit. Yeah, ago but uh, when we talked, talked about Spider Man, yeah, when he was talking about, I, I, it occurred to me it's pretty obvious that I'm much more interested in playing games based on superhero comics than watching the movies or even the TV series because they feel like dead ends in a way that the games aren't. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about the format of films and TV series. Not 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 like the length of them and and the the medium that they're in, but mm. the 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 fact of them as productions. So like 
no Marvel film can ever end conclusively, including yeah. Infinity War Part 2, like, unless they axe the whole project, at which point, when that does happen, it will feel like a bit of a wet slap of meat on the ground. It's never going to feel like... They're not, they're not telling a story that's going anywhere. They're just going to keep going until they can't anymore. With a TV series, same thing. You never know if you're going to get a second season. So you have to leave it open to an extent to make people demand a second season. Um, that sort of thing. Whereas with a game, you are actually pretty sure that you're only going to get this shot. Because even if the game gets a sequel, you won't be working on it. So there's a certain amount of... They try and make a fairly complete package with games and it's and it allows but it, but there's enough room in them for you to explore for hours and hours and hours and, and really get yourself immersed in the world yeah without for, having to waste viewing hours on it yeah like anyone who's like a fan of batman will probably yeah. find infinitely more satisfaction from any of the arkham games than than anything else that's been made like adapting the character and the stories into like movies and tv shows and whatever I think like the Arkham Probably. games kind of makes all their hopes and dreams come true in a way that no other medium can, apart from I guess the original comics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very probably. Yeah, because you you get to inhabit the world in a, such a different way because you walk around and you just look at all the things and all the production work that's been put in. It's, it's yeah, not, it's not a set that the camera just pants by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, should we get to talking about Star Wars? We'll do that in a minute. I just yeah. want to mention something else because I've just thought of it. Yeah. Uh, I've started watching Maniac. Have you heard of Maniac? No. It, it's a Netflix series, and it just... Uh, the the trailer for it came on, and for whatever reason, um, this was one that I actually watched, uh, the trailer. And it was sufficiently interesting that I watched the first... I put on the first episode expecting to get about 20 minutes in. I got about an hour and a half into the series before, like, and this is watching during one meal. As you know, we spread out our viewings a lot. This this means it was gripping in some way. It's a very odd thing. It's a... I don't know whether to call it a science fiction series. Um, it's... Uh, right, who is it? It's Emma Stone, and it's... Oh, who's the chubby one from Jump Street? Except now he's lost loads of weight. Um, yeah, that can't remember guy. His name. Yeah, and they each uh, they they play these two people uh, who have these totally different lives, but who meet in this one place. And the first episode is his story, and the second episode is her story. And I don't know what happens after that. But it's set in this kind of alternate universe, like eighties, where they have everything is. Uh, the world building in it is fascinating because it's so close to real world, but there are things that are just off to one side, kind of in a black mirror sort of way, and everything about their world points to this um, universal desire to escape uh, from life. And they, their way that they find is to sign up for this kind of like drug testing thing. Now, he has these hallucinations, and she is some sort of a junkie and we don't know the, I, I don't yet know the full story uh, behind like what's going on with her but they are put into this program that essentially like after what must be an hour and a half uh, spent in this da this really down to earth if a little bit sci-fi uh, gloomy world that feels you know realistic 
suddenly they just go into this virtual reality world or something and i don't really quite know yet because we stopped shortly after that but the emma stone is just put into an alternate life and i don't know if it's a flashback i don't know if it's a genuinely a completely different like made-up world um the trailer seemed to imply that you're going to be essentially dimension hopping uh, as does the opening uh, type uh, like narrated bit it's odd it's a it's a it's a tv series that's funny but in a way where it never makes you like laugh out loud it's just got interesting ideas that are themselves funny it's kind of gloomy and depressing but it's really fascinating to watch the the cast is really good some bits i've just remembered are laugh out loud funny but that makes you feel weird because it's in this extremely like oppressive universe i recommend it have a look at the at netflix original maniac it's it's yeah. weird i can't tell you if i like it yet but i can tell you that i obsessively watched like way more of it than i usually would before i could bring myself to switch it off uh now part of that was because i know i knew that sally field was going to be in it and i thought she was great as aunt may in the amazing spider-man films um and i, I did i thought she was really good so i was interested to see what she's like in other stuff because i haven't really seen her in anything else apart from mrs doubtfire hmm. uh and uh when it came to it, it it actually turns out that she's just voicing a supercomputer uh <laughs> Which kind of tells you a little bit about the tone of this. It it, it does throw these weird things at you. It's it's not a, a Sense Eight. I, I I compared it w- with uh, the TV show Utopia. If you saw mm. that, except instead of being incredibly bright, vivid colours, it was an another interesting alternate take on reality. Have a look. It's interesting. There yeah. we go. Yeah, I'll give it. I'll give it a look. Yeah. Anyway, unlike last time when we talked about Star Wars, this time I'm going to try to. Avoid summoning any other person's opinions of any kind. Because I noticed when I watched it, that kind of my my real feelings about the movie came up. And I noticed that there's a lot of really crappy critics on YouTube. And I can't believe I've watched hours of people (laughs) critiquing or praising the movie. And none of them brought up stuff that just were super obvious to me as things that I thought were problems, whereas many of the things people complain about, I think, are just fine. Yeah. Yeah, that is a that is a tricky one. Um, yeah. I, I, I will attempt to do the same, but I don't think I can. I think, uh, I think I'm so full of the... Uh, I'm on the other side. I, I love it. I think it's great. Mm. Um, but I know that I've been affected. Well, no. Okay, I know that to an extent, what I think are the reasons why I like it, are affected, and they are, and I can't escape this, by the fact that I do like it when films annoy the angry internet men. And to that extent, I will have taken on board some of the things that uh, the people online have said to that extent. Yeah. Um, but I... I, did like, I did like this film a lot when I saw it. Hmm. And watching it again, I just had the same experience. And, and we were talking last week, but mostly privately after the show, not last week, it was a few weeks ago, Yeah. about how odd it is that if you... It, it, and we found this between each other, that if you like the film and if you dislike the film, it's like a different film. Yeah, because I wanted to see some video essay of someone who liked the movie explain and kind of bridge the gap so I could understand why the person liked the movie. But what we found instead, after watching like, I don't know, five of these at least, and I kept reading the comments on the videos after seeing 
making it. And there were more people like me who wanted to understand yeah. why people liked the movie, but weren't convinced by any of the arguments put forward by the persons who liked the movie because they kept saying things that were just felt kind of irrelevant in a way. They weren't getting at like, yeah, but why? <laughs> and they weren't yeah, addressing because, the criticisms uh, against the movie properly. It was like it it mattered, or it kind of they they couldn't understand why people disliked the movie, and there was like yeah. a hard split there, where it's like people were just talking yeah. past each other. They, it's like they were talking about different movies. <laughs> well, yeah, a, a big part of the problem is that if you like the movie, you may just have liked it, and like and and I probably just liked it. And yeah. so when you then go, okay, loads of people don't like it. Let's find out why. And the and the reasons you get are like borderline conspiracy theory nonsense about like <laughs> irrelevant topics. You then, what that has done is it's colored all of the positive reviews of the film because they have to begin by essentially like combating those ideas when those ideas are themselves nothing. And yeah. that... that gets in the way of the of the actual review i'm just going to heat up my tea yeah so uh, what i found to be a pleasant surprise because when i watched before i rewatched the movie i wondered like will i be able to watch this and, and not have the specter of other people's ideas kind of hanging over me coloring my opinion and i noticed very quickly that no i'm actually able to watch this and not give a shit about what anyone said about it one way or the other i'm just kind of i'm put back into the mindset of me watching it for the first time and stuff that annoyed me the first time still annoyed me this time and i was i'm now able to vocalize more clearly what it does wrong and exactly where it goes wrong for me so right and i had a i guess i had a equivalent experience which was that again i i just liked it and so i think i'm i don't think i'm going to be able to make many very strong arguments because i just i just liked it and it's strange to me that people don't um in the same way, you know, it's like it's almost like coming out of something like Back to the Future and people going like, "Well, of course it had a problematic structure." And I'm like, "What? It was what? It was good." And then I find it difficult to explain why. Yeah. So f for example, the first time I watched a movie, I thought the, the opening of the movie was bad, but I kind of after a while really? forgot about the why. The, the, the thing with um, Rose's sister and the space battle, that bit. Uh, it's like the first 30 minutes of the movie is bad. Right. And I'm pretty clear on what's bad with it now. First, first, the first five minutes of the movie are just fine. Right. It's at minute six, it's when the bombers show up. That's uh -huh. when my I get really impatient because I, I feel like, okay, we're in a kind of omniscient viewpoint here, jumping around a, a yeah. lot of places, a lot of different characters. But we're not meeting any of our main characters. It's just Leia, Poe, the uh, First Order guys. And like Poe isn't the main character in this. Like, I'm just sitting there. Okay, so this is the situation. When does the movie start? And instead it's like, oh, here's more opening shit to just lay the premise of it with the bombers. It's like, who the hell are these people? Where are our main characters? <laughs> And then, I, do, I confess I don't remember this, so you'll have to remind me. Wh which characters are we not meeting at this point? Uh, the the protagonists of the film, I assume. Uh, Finn and uh, Ray. Oh, I see. I see. Mm, yeah, okay, I guess. I, I do think that... Um, I do think that Poe is as big of a main character in there. I, honestly, I think it's equal between the three of them, and they all have 
they all have completely separate stories to each other. So I, to me, I see this bit as like, this is the Poe intro and the Leia intro, essentially. Yeah, and I then we'll deal with the other characters later. Yeah, I think it's just a problem with viewpoint because I, I try to think about it. Like, how would you make this in a way that I would enjoy? And I think the opening scene should cut out all the uh, kind of Poe scenes completely right. and instead show it entirely, the, the first 10 minutes entirely from Rose's sister's perspective. Start mm -hmm. in like her, I don't know, wherever she hangs out before she scrambled to run to the bombers and then take off. So have her be there, have her have a scene with Rose so we establish their relationship and then have the entire yeah. bombing run and the action scene from her perspective. Because there is this scene where Rose's sister is uh, um, kind of temporarily stunned and we get the extreme close-up of her face and her eye and she has to kick the detonator down so the bombs can yeah. be dropped. That uh, would be fitting if she was kind of the primary viewpoint character of that scene. But that happens kind of like a minute before she, we get that um, right. style shift. Uh, that's when we first see her and then she dies and uh, she holds onto a necklace which i guess is supposed to be a visual thing to remember mm -hmm. for later but i only noticed that she clutches a necklace or rather i only remembered that she clutches her necklace the third time i watched the movie <laughs> oh okay well yeah but that's the other half of the necklace that then rose does uh, a lot yeah in the rest of it, right yeah um i think it would have been better for Rose's character if she was shown off earlier in the film with the sister. So we can have some clear motivations for her. And again, Poe right, okay. po in the entire film, I think it's just a garbage character that should not be in the movie to the way to the extent he is. Like uh, when Rose and Finn present their plan to um, turn off the hyperspace detector thing. That was like, I think it's 42 minutes into the movie. Uh, yeah, I wrote down in my notes here. 42 minutes into the movie is when they ex explain their plan to Poe. Uh -huh. That's when he should be given most screen time. I think earlier in the movie, Poe gets a bunch of screen time when he argues with Leia and is demoted. And Finn is kind of just standing in the background. He's an extra there. I think Finn should have been the viewpoint character there. And he sees that and right. walks off like uh, one of my real gripes here uh, is after a 10 minute long action opening which i yeah. think should have been shorter but anyway that's when we meet finn and he, we only follow him for 90 seconds before we cut away and i think uh, that's where i feel like okay this is where the movie starts because we join our main character from the last movie and we're now we're supposed to get some real scenes i think instead he wakes up walks out the corridor his first line is where's ray cut away from him <laughs> that point it's like poe's gotten 10 minutes of this movie basically and finn gets 90 seconds before we cut away from to, to ray well that's <laughs> true um although they are using him less as a that's not finn's bit that's the introduction of ray's bit um, it, it shows you that she's an important character. I guess. I guess what they're doing here, to an extent, is making a closed film. Whereas, 
for and there is no one who fits this description but for it, people who hadn't watched the force awakens that is the the thing with poe at the beginning that's setting up who poe is um that part where it's like where's ray that sets up that ray is someone important that these people know that we're now going to get her story and then finn's story comes as the um the next part starting when he tries to escape and goes with Rose and, and all of that. That's yeah. that spins a bit. I, I just think they should reshuffle the scenes because, yeah. like, just cut from the battle directly to Ray. You don't need a transition of someone waking up and then the, the only thing he says is, Where's Ray? And then we cut right. to Ray. It's like, this creates a theoretical problem here. If you were, uh-huh. because this implies that he asks the question and is what we're seeing. Poe answering him, right? Is the, the story of Ray arriving on the planet? Is that it's the frame here that it that's Poe telling Finn what happened to Ray, and then we get a similar thing where um, Luke asks uh, Ray, "Where's Han?" Yeah. Cut to Kylo Ren, and yeah. then when Kylo Ren's scene ends, we get a wipe transition. Which George Lucas loved those fucking things in the star, older Star Wars films, but you get one of those, and it's timed in a way that it's possible to misunderstand that what we just saw—the interaction with Kylo Ren and uh, Snoke—was Ray telling Luke about it because we joined them again mid-scene with Ray telling Luke that uh, Kylo Ren is kind of beyond saving. Oh, okay, <laughs> I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So we could. We could be getting the story of Poe telling Finn about this time when Ray told Luke about Kylo Ren's meeting with Snow. <laughs> okay, I guess so. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. That isn't how it reads to me. But I, no, I, I, I and yeah. it didn't read like that to me either. First time I saw the movie, I, it just occurred to me now yeah. because it cuts on the question. It could imply that it's the person telling the story. <laughs> yeah, I guess it could. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, all of uh, Ray's and Luke's scenes are just fine. I think they are by far the best scenes in the movie. And thanks to the commentary track, I think I know why they're the best scenes in the movie. Okay. Because now I didn't, I didn't in the end have time to watch the commentary track. I still am interested in watching it, but I haven't done. Yeah, so I found it to, to be very interesting, and it was a, a commentary track recorded before the release of the film, so um, ah. he has uh, not that, heard. I, I, I'm way more into that because that that solves the problem that we're talking about. If it had been after the film, he would have felt the need to address some of the nonsense problems. Um, my favorite example of this being the the book I have on my shelf of the making of the Popeye movie, written at a time when they were convinced it was going to be the next Wizard of Oz. It's just so much more interesting to find out what they thought they were making compared to what came out. Yep. So, in the commentary track, when you get to the uh, mirror scene, where uh, Ray goes into the uh, cave and sees the mirror himself. He starts talking about that Kathleen Kennedy, this is something that has annoyed me, this, this speculation of uh, uh, internet douchebag that said, Kathleen Kennedy is ruining the Star Wars franchise. This... Oh, is that, the, is that the, the, the woman who's essentially like the showrunner for Star Wars now? Yeah. 
And yeah. this anecdotal story that Ryan Johnson tells shows that no, she might actually be the only person making these movies any good at all. <laughs> because she has a friend that I can't remember the name of, but Ryan Johnson says that he is apparently um, the unsung hero of this uh, new uh, Star Wars trilogy because he, Kathleen Kennedy, forces all the people who make new Star Wars movies to talk to this guy because he has a lot of... He asks challenges them on questions about the themes and he demands that people who write Star Wars movies add something deeply personal of their own into these stories. And in this movie, that was Ray's character journey and how it's portrayed as like some personal like ties to it and to um, Ryan Johnson himself. And I felt like you can just tell that this is by far the most interesting part of the story because it was oh, yeah. the most personally resonant to the person who made the movie. And the rest of the movie, all the sub-stories, it just feels like mechanical, going through the motions, making a generic blockbuster movie, whereas Ray's story is the one where the writer had actually some personal stake in it because he was That's challenged to... Yeah, because he was challenged I, to write it that way. So it makes... I just wish did, that he'd been did. challenged more <laughs> that way. <laughs> they didn't happen to mention what the equivalent thing in The Force Awakens was, did they? Because I can't think of anything that feels particularly like personal to J.J. Abrams in that. No, but apparently it was the case that uh, for that uh, Force Awakens, yeah, he yeah. was challenged in the same way to have something personal there. Fair enough. And if we got the answer for that, we would probably immediately notice that, oh yeah, it's the only good thing in this yeah. movie. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, when I was just going through, the, the only scenes where I was just sitting there enjoying the movie was really everything that I had to do with Ray. Because with Finn, even with the commentary track, I didn't, didn't get a satisfying explanation for what happens with his character and his arc. I was mostly confused by his decisions. Like, when it comes to the uh, arguments that Poe has with Leia and stuff, the reasons there was that he was inspired by uh, Battlestar Galactica. He thought yeah. it would be interesting to show um, dissent within the good guys' ranks kind of within a confined space in the same way as Battlestar Galactica. And oh, and by the way, I've just got to say that I, a way that the film was different for me on second watching mm. than on the first watching was that I did not approve of Poe's actions this time. Um, I think the first time I was caught up in the kind of like, yeah, Poe is the action hero. This is Star Wars. Go and shoot things. This time when he had that mutiny, I was like, oh, you idiot. I thought he was being a real dumbbell this time. <laughs> yeah, he was basically, when I watched the second time, he was just a raving lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> like when he has the scene on the bridge of the ship and he's just yeah. screaming there and everyone's just staring at him. It really... Why yeah. don't they lock him up? And yeah. I'm also confused by he's demoted, so he's supposed to have a commanding officer now above him that has his previous role. Where's that person? <laughs> that is a point. That's a point. Yeah, I'm prepared to I'm prepared to say that that's because like that was a demonstration of how he didn't consider himself like demoted in any way and just still hung around in the same places. But yes, it does make you think, well, who's supposed to be in charge of him now? 
Yeah, and him having that meltdown on the bridge yeah. should have been the now throw this guy in jail. We don't have time for this shit. <laughs> it's yeah. unacceable behavior. And then when he stages the mutiny, Honestly, actually, I think the actual answer to that is that the reason he didn't get thrown in jail is just purely because Leia does like him. She has her, she knows him personally now, and he's like, all right, stay here, but you don't get to lead your own you don't get to order make your own orders and go on your own quests anymore but yeah who is because it's not holdo that's not the replacement person she's like above like them all isn't she yeah she was the interim for leia so there's still a gap there and i don't agree with adding moral grace like this because even though there might be dissent in the rebel ranks there's no they're right they're fighting space nazis <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like i don't feel that there was a place for this it's like if if someone stages a coup and stuff they're still supposed to be like the good guys like the moral relativism here that the uh, same thing with what was supposed to be um finn's arc he mm-hmm. he talks when the code breaker explains his motives for the way he views the word w- world where he like he he doesn't care which side of the war is winning as, lo- as long as he makes money yeah ryan johnson says that this was supposed to be a scene where finn is kind of challenged morally for like okay does he want to lay down his life for the rebels or is he more on the kind of relativist side where it's like he doesn't give a shit um yeah Fuck you, I got, got mine. But I feel like in the opening scene of Force Awakens, he defects from the First Order because they execute a village of innocents. And he yeah. has kind of blood on his suit, kind of literally blood on his hands yeah. for the murders yeah. of innocents. I feel like he's already 100% on the side of fighting on the side of rebels there ah you see i i don't that's Mm. i think that's a point where we disagree because i did i did think that and i was confused by that the first time i watched it but the second time i got a different thing out of it which was that finn um and this by the way i think is the answer to the whole question of what the canto bite bit is for um so just to bring that in because I don't know if I don't know if you count that as a as this as a sensible criticism or as a silly criticism, but it's one that nearly everyone has that the Canto bite scene kind of feels like filler. Uh, um, yeah, and, and the problem I had with it this time was that yeah. when they arrive at the uh, casino, it, it flows along fine enough. Um, first off, the the video call to uh, Mas Canata shouldn't have been there. Because they yeah, have a that, se- was, that was a bit like when they called Spock in Into Darkness, isn't it? Yeah, because it, it, they could just cut directly to them arriving at the casino plant because they have a sh- scene in the interior of the ship where they're arriving at the casino planet and Rose explains why they've gone there because it's yeah. the local hive of scum and villainy. So that's where they find a code breaker. And then I don't understand why did they have to land on the beach? <laughs> Because in the shot where they land on the beach and do a traffic violation, which will eventually get them arrested, (laughs) the camera pans and there's loads of ships arriving and flying away. So there is a spaceport there. So extend the scene 
in the interior of the ship and explain why they landed on the beach. So instead of them looking like idiots, there's yeah. some understanding of like, do they have to have permissions or maybe just have them land properly and be arrested for petty reasons because the war profiteers don't want rebels there, maybe. Yeah. Just okay. So some well, other reason for it. Okay, so going back into Finn's Finn's character and how I think this connects in, right? Yeah. Um, I think that the Canto Bite scene, as much as it sort of like is about Finn's character, I think it is the like the gathering of evidence that feeds into Ray's story and into Luke's character. Mm. Um, as for Finn, and this is a, this is a, a fairly simple level. Um, Finn, in the okay, in the first film, you're right. At the very beginning, he um, he's he's in that fight where he realizes he's on the bad guy's side and he decides to defect. But the film never does get him to the point where he's prepared to fight for good. All he ever does is escape. So in so the first thing he does is he he you know steals that ship and escapes with Poe. It's the only reason he meets Poe, the only reason he frees Poe is cuz he can't fly a thing. Um they escape. For the rest of the Force Awakens and I agree that this isn't made explicitly clear and I think this film kind of is the point at which they maybe even decided it. But if you do look at that film, all he ever does is try to either get away from problems or once he's made friends with Rey, he's then doing things to help her in some way. If she's in danger, he goes to help her. That's that's his actually that's his main motivating moment is when she gets taken away by I can't remember if it's Phasma or if it's Kylo Ren. I think it might be Kylo Ren takes her like physically picks her up i think she's unconscious and takes her into his ship and that's the point at which finn does any sort of fighting after that he is like unconscious so we never get a moment where he's actually like okay now i'm on the side of the rebels so that to me it does make sense that in this film his arc is that he wakes up goes great my adventure's finished now i'm off he finds out what he finds out where he is he finds out what's going on and he leaves and he, the only reason he even gets into the story any more than that is because Rose knocks him out and kind of forces him, like shames him, into not escaping in that moment. So over the course of the rest of this film, we're shown him being given evidence and reasons that lead him to, at the very end, say, rebel scum. And that's the point at which he's, like, joined a cause. Up till then... You know, you've even got the thing like where, where he's doing his suicide run and he's flying towards that thing. That's because fundamentally he's just a trained weapon and that's kind of all he is. And it's when Rose says to him about like protect the things you love that he thinks about what that is. And he's like, do you know what? Actually, I am on this side and, and, and joins. And I think that's what it is. Yeah, it's good. a good thing you explained that because I found the that scene to be completely nonsensical and incomprehensible to me. Because okay. the way I saw it yeah. was that Rose, her arc has been someone who uh, works uh, for the rebels and takes her duty for like the the majority and the, uh, the greater cause very seriously. Her sister has died, but she's continuing yep. her duties there, doing petting stuff like uh, guarding the escape pods yeah. and, and mourning. And by the end of the movie, she's transitioned to where she's willing to sacrifice the lives of all the rebels in order to save the one person that she loves. Where she... 
Oh, okay. Yeah, because... Uh, in, and when you say you sacrifice the life of the rebels, you mean by stopping him from... Yeah, because Finn is going to stop the uh, weapon from blowing up all the rebels, and she... See, I don't... I, I think that's <laughs> the difference there, is that I don't think he was. I think what he was doing wouldn't have worked, because I just think he would have been dissolved straight away, and it would have just blown them up anyway. And I, and I think that... Yeah, but it was, I agree the, that it is a bit weird that the solution to that is to have Rose... Like blast him out of the way and herself die. I don't really. There is there is something there, but I don't think he would have. I don't think she's sacrificing anyone because I don't think it would have made a difference. She's just trying to stop someone she actually knows from it, dying, it's as the, well as all those other people. <laughs> it's it's the timings of the events of uh-huh. because it is a common thing. Like we even saw like the the suicide run of her sister at the start, which again here. I think the ending of this suicide run would have worked uh, more powerfully if we'd been with the sister and Rose right at the start of the film and had right. that payoff again at the end where another person is going on a suicide run, uh, but this time she's in a position to uh, stop it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah, fair enough, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, in- instead I'm just... It's the timing of her saying that... Uh, I saved you, dummy. Uh, we're not going to win this war by f- fighting the ones we hate. We're doing it with love. And then immediately, kind of two seconds after she says it, in the same sh- shot, the laser goes off and the base blows up. And it's like, yeah, but everyone's dead now. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I, it all happened so quickly that uh, the. Whatever the intent was kind of flew over my head and I was sitting there very confused. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. What I don't know and what I don't agree with is why... I, basically, I don't, I don't think they should have killed her off. Yeah. Um, and the fact, that, the fact that they did, I think, gives us a clue because they didn't kill her off because of any kind of like response, like whether people liked her character or not because they hadn't seen her yet. This is her only film. So it must be then a, one of the pieces on the board. It must be one of the, the, the uh, techniques that they used. And although I don't like this because it smacks of fridging, it implies that she was only ever a tool for, for Finn's development. Um, and I guess that could be how I've come to some of the conclusions that I have. I might be looking at it that way. So yeah, I, yeah I, I'm, not, I'm not happy with that either, really. Yeah, I, I just feel like this is an example of Parts of the movie that didn't get enough thought put into them uh-huh. because he wasn't challenged on it in the same way that it was with the Ray's uh, story arc. Because that, that's where he most of the thought and effort was put into it. And yeah, and really, the, the, when I watched it now the second time, I made a note of the problem I have with the casino sequence. It's kind of what, and it cuts to them in jail. Like yeah. the movie has had like a good clip and a pace. And we cut to the jail scene, and I felt like the momentum of the movie just fell off a cliff there because it's just people standing around in a dark room just wondering, okay, now what? Just, it's, it's, uh-huh. it's had a good momentum there, but then it kind of picks up again. And again, most of the movie moves on at a good clip. Like, it's two and a half hours long, and it's really only 90 minutes into the movie I started getting impatient. Like, the first 30 minutes, even though I thought they were... Uh, bad at getting me into the movie they moved past pretty quickly but I just waiting like okay but when does the movie start and it eventually does and mm-hmm. it was interesting to note that 
uh, Ryan Johnson says that there was a lot more just jumping around all over the place uh, at the start with people saying a line and then we cut to a different character. But he noticed that instead of what he was thinking when he wrote it that way was that people would get too bored if we stayed too long with a single mm. character. But he noticed that in editing that it had the opposite effect of because we, we got bored because we didn't stay long enough with anyone. Right. So, and I yeah. think that was the problem with the, the first 30 minutes of I wanted to stay longer with someone. But instead, it's like Finn wakes up and we don't get a real scene with him because it kind of the, the setup of a scene. But then we cut away too fast. And um, that's that's absolutely fair enough. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I think the reason I didn't mind that was mostly because um, I kind of agree with that. I think the reason I didn't mind it was just because I was, you know, waiting to find out what was happening with all these characters. So for me, when another one came on screen, it was like, oh, good. Now I will find out what's happening here. So, yeah, that's that. That's I think I agree with that criticism, even though it doesn't affect me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sierra, my notes are big and unorganized. I'm going to see if I have another interesting point here. Let's see. Oh, oh yeah. The uh, Leia being blown out into space 30 minutes in. Yeah. I didn't mind it as such I kind of just mind it because it doesn't lead to anything greater I feel like uh, it's there because they mentioned that in earlier films that the the force runs strong in your family your sister has it too so they wanted to pay her off in a way by showing that oh here's her force powers but there's no she doesn't do anything more with it. Like she doesn't go out in the final confrontation and uh, force push anyone. Instead, that's uh-huh. kind of it. She's kind of out of commission for the rest of the movie and kind of wakes up and then just sits around. And um, it, yeah, it, I think that one yeah. might be. I suspect that one might be an unfortunate. Uh, or I mean, again, and I don't mind it, but I think it might be the result of an unfortunate fact, which is that the films were set up to be the first one is Han Solo's film and the second one is Luke's film and the third one is Leia's film and this was set up for that and now we're not going to have that yeah Um, that's what I think is happening here I think basically they they wanted a moment where because obviously it totally makes sense that Leia being like this hyper competent you know 3D chess several steps ahead leader did need to be taken out in some way in order for the the chumps we hang around with to like have to step in and because basically i think the problem would have been that if the characters we met as individuals in the first film did sort of start fighting with the rebellion at this point it it wouldn't be anything because the rebellion has leaders and they wouldn't be them and so on so to have this moment where the leader is taken out and or the you know like when obi-wan died it's like the mentor is removed and so the characters have to step up to the plate the way that they did that was like they just did an interesting way of doing that that keeps Leia alive, but only barely. And you needed something spectacular because she is, like, powerful. Um, and then, unfortunately, yeah, that would have been a, a far more satisfying bit if in the third film it had been all about her. Yeah. And it should have been. And it won't be. That, no. is, that is a shame. Yep. Really is. But here, so it does, I, I don't yeah, notice. It does kind of make her... It kind of reminds me of David Tennant's first episode of Doctor Who in reverse, right? His first episode of Doctor Who, he's regenerating and he spends the whole thing asleep. And everyone else is trying to work around him. And then at the end, 
he shows up for this incredible five minutes of like probably some of the best David Tennanting he ever did in Doctor Who. This is the other way around. You've got this spectacular force moment where because her death was so recent and we thought that that was her dead and then she gets this big moment. Personally, a lot of people thought it was ridiculous. Me and Abby loved it. But yeah, then she spends a lot of the rest of the film not really doing anything. I don't mind that she doesn't act at the end because she's in recovery. But yeah, now look, until we find out what they do, because she is in the third one. They're, they're putting together unused footage to get her in it. Yeah. Until we see what that is, it's going to feel a bit weird, I think. Yeah. Anyway, I, I have some more kind of minor, more petty notes that don't okay. actually make any any difference for me had they been fixed or not in a broader okay. sense. But yeah, I, I noted, noticed them. Like, for example, uh, in the casino sequence, uh, at the end, Finn says that uh, it was worth it, though, to tear up that town when they just mm-hmm. vandalize everything <laughs> and uh, they let the animal go. But I felt like, is this the mentality of people who go to like the G8 meetings and vandalize the city and be like, yeah, it was worth it to tear up the town, but you made absolutely <laughs> no difference whatsoever. You inconvenienced them for two days, and now the <laughs> rich people who run Casino City are going to work the slaves overtime, day and night, until they fix it. So you made it mildly inconvenient and maybe caused uh, labor death from the slaves, who you didn't save, by the way. You just save some animals who will be recaptured. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't yeah. mind the sentiment because, you know, given like the last bit of the film and so on, I, I think that's pointing towards a, an uprising. But yeah, I don't think they would have known that to say it. So yeah, that, it, it, that smacks to me as like just, just trying to make the most of a bad situation in the moment, which is a bit clumsy. Yeah, it didn't feel triumphant to me in any way with the music and the visuals yeah. and Felt, yeah, yeah, but what you're doing here is really petty and uh, unimportant. You're not destroying critical infrastructure. You're destroying some windows and cars. <laughs> it's like you didn't tear up the town. You just smashed some windows. <laughs> <laughs> like when they burned all those cars in London... Did they change anything? They burnt cars in Paris. Did they change anything? Yeah, I think that's yeah. That line would have worked better if they had seen palpable evidence of their effect on the. Because there's definitely going to be a slave uprising, right? That kid, because because that kid, I'll talk about it in a minute. Because I made yeah. some notes about the whole Canto bite bit, but that kid is there, isn't he? To imply that, like, here's another ray. And they're everywhere and if they see this stuff going on and then then it that's why it's worth it but yeah actually having the li- them say the line yeah it, it felt what's it, the point it, of that it, it didn't feel justified like the, their actions what we saw them do how they played out that like <laughs> self-aggrandizing <laughs> yeah and uh, a thing that bugged me is uh, joda's book burning oh i like that what's wrong with that I just have an instinctive uh, uh, revulsion to anyone holding a book burning because right. I, agree, I, I agree with the sentiment of yeah. like uh, he says that yeah Ray already has the values that the books contain like the wisdom wisdoms that the books hold wisdoms but she doesn't need it she already right. knows it but the books will outlive her 
someone in the future might come along who well, might okay. need the wisdoms in the books, but now you okay, burn yeah. them. I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that. And I felt that as well. Yeah. Both times. I felt that as well. But I think the bigger point is not that it's like, well, we don't need the books because the information in them is, is out there in Ray. It's that we don't need the books because the Jedi were an oppressive order. Like they did kidnap all those children and like indoctrinate them. And like, it's it, it, like Luke is right. The, the Jedi were like the reason that we had Darth Vader and, and all of this stuff. Yeah, but there, there are uh, wisdoms that can be gained from ancient texts, even from people who were morally uh, suspect, like uh, yeah. meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Like, okay, it's so a Roman emperor yeah. in a state that had slavery, and people really enjoy reading it and feel like, oh, there's a lot of really good wisdoms here for this person who's surprisingly thoughtful. But should we hold book burnings because we already know everything that he said? Either way, it's been uh, our culture has is saturated with kind of versions of ancient wisdoms, so we already yeah. know all that. Should we hold burn all ancient books because we already know it? But well, in that yeah. case, I know what you mean there. In that yeah. in that case, how about we read it like this? Because we actually find out later that no books were burned at all. Ray had already stolen them. And they weren't in there. So let's pretend that Yoda knows that. And it's reasonable to assume Yoda knows that. He's an invincible force ghost who knows everything. And that that whole point was only for the benefit of giving Luke permission to leave that stuff behind. Yeah. Um, I think that's a reasonable reading of it, even if it in the moment isn't the one that you yeah, see. It's more like a personal instinctive revulsion to any book burnings. Whereas yeah. I can also acknowledge all the sentiments and actual dialogue in the scene are actually good. So, Well, what you could say then, <laughs> you could say that Yoda prevents, not a book burning, because there were no books in there, but prevents Luke from performing what he believes is a book burning <laughs> by himself convincing him he's already done it. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a complaint, like, who gives it shit one way or the other? <laughs> but it's something that I noticed when I watched it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, with the um, Codebreaker talking to Finn with stuff that had supposed to inform Finn's character, I feel like that should have been done by Phasma instead. Because I feel oh, like okay. because. All right, yeah, go on. Yeah, because Phasma is a character that Finn talked to, and it, there was like an implied that she knows him. On some level or understands where he came from and what kind of person he is i feel like she's the person that should have challenged finn on his beliefs and then have that be paid off by him really rejecting it as hard as possible yeah yeah i think i agree with that or at least i think there is something to be said for um if i'm right that the story here is about how finn has always been escaping rather than joining the good guys um, then I think his name's DJ, that guy. Yeah. Um, then him being an example of the sort of person who behaves like that and a, and a visual example of that being a bad guy thing to do in and of itself. I think there's, I think there's purpose to that, hmm. but whether he was in it or not, I definitely agree that that scene with Phasma should also, or instead of have been in the film. Definitely. Yes. A longer scene or maybe one more scene with Phasma 
Yeah. Because she makes her first appearance in the movie an hour and 35 minutes in. And I feel like, no, she should have been in the movie earlier and had more stuff going on. So Yeah, especially... It's, yeah, she's... she's dem- well, I was going to say demoted, but I'll say that in a minute. But let's say demoted to a final boss for Finn to defeat to prove that he's now on the rebellion side. And it doesn't quite work, especially given that it isn't a demotion because she was criminally underused in the first film as well. Yeah, I think her role should have been as strong as the relationship between Rey and Kylo Ren. Because there we have a two sides of the same coin thing. A good Jedi, evil Jedi. And like, okay, so what's the motivations behind the evil Jedi? And what is it exactly that Rey is rejecting and choosing something else? And here we should have the good soldier and the evil immoral soldier. Again, two sides of the same coin thing should be going on. Same kind of relationship. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a lost opportunity there. Because everyone wanted to see more of Phasma. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) she was... Yeah. But, and and I think it's mostly because she was perfectly cast. I think we're all interested in seeing that actor play that character more than more, I would say, than we're interested in that character. Yeah. And so do something with it. It's really weird that in two films in a row, they just brought her in and killed her off, like with ha- with her having very little other point. I-, I used to think it was an homage to Boba Fett, but now it's just like do something with this character. And I I I seem to remember hearing that she did have an interesting deleted scene. But that's not good enough. Put something in. Yeah. So, I also felt a vague disappointment hour and 30 minutes into the movie where everyone's kind of coming back to the slow chase scene. Uh So, Ray's arriving there, Finn's arriving there at the same time. And I felt like the scope of the film isn't grand enough. And I felt like, no, here's the problem with the slow chase as a premise, really. Okay. It, it doesn't feel like they're arriving at the grand final location for the film. It just feels like, oh, we're back here again. So Yeah, yeah. I don't mind that in the way that I... See, here again, I'm affected by people's criticism. The main criticism I've heard about that is is how it... It's sci-fi criticisms, which I don't care about. Yeah, but, yeah, I don't care about it either. I just noted yeah. that I felt a sense of vague disappointment that... That's the place everything converges at, place where we've already been for the whole movie. And I and I'm I'm even worse than that because I don't even know where they end up. I can't remember now what that chase comes to at all. So like, yeah, clearly that was not something that that bit properly. Yeah. So, uh, in the final battle, where I know a. Uh, uh, went back a couple of times in the commentary track just to make sure I noted this down correctly because I felt like, really? (laughs) Uh, In the final um, suicide run, Ryan Johnson says that uh, the lesson Poe learned from Leia is to think of the bigger picture so he can't blow all their best pilots on a heroic suicide mission and at the same time, it's crossing with Finn, who thinks he's fighting the good fight, that he's in it to the end. And that's crossing with Rose, who was on the same track as Finn the whole time, but it's no, now coming around to, yes, but we have to protect the things we love in the world. A lot of crossing around. This is what he says as they're, as they're cutting from Poe saying that it's a suicide run, they have to turn back. 
Finn deciding to do the suicide run and Rose then um, stopping him. And uh, those comments just felt, I don't know, va- vaguely disappointing to me. <laughs> like, really? That's it? Oh, okay, I guess. I just didn't understand really what he was thinking with the, the character arcs. Would Ray, Kylo, Ren, Luke? I understand all that perfectly clear. And I felt like, oh, this, this is good. And with all the other stuff, I just wasn't on board with it. That's why I'm. Felt most of the movie was fine because of the Ray scenes. They kind of elevate it, but then it's kind of brought down by stuff. I, I just don't understand the characters and what they're doing. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. There, yeah. There is a disconnect, and it comes from the fact that, like, the Ray story is so much more um, powerful in the sense of like the viewer's connection with it. Um, but I think, okay, so this goes back to what I was um, saying earlier about the Canto Bite scene, right? Mm. I think that it does feed into. It's like, okay, you know when you you know when you're doing your maths homework and they say show you're working, and you've got all of your little notes. I think that Canto Bite is the notes for Ray's story and Luke's character in ways that I find difficult to express, but I wrote some notes and Mm. here they are. When Kylo says to Ray, you are nothing, you're nobody. And a lot of people have had criticisms with that, but whatever. It's not correct. He it's dramatic irony. He's saying a thing that the film through Canto bite has established is not true in this world, right? It's Canto bite is the film putting together its evidence for that. And it gives a living example of the kind of thinking Luke has reached. So on Canto Bite, in that whole scene, you see you, you've you gone into Star Wars. We've got Star Wars films in our head, right? And so we think that it is all about dynasties and bloodlines. But on Canto Bite, you find out this new concept of what somebodies are and what nobodies are. Rose is a nobody and she is the victim of somebodies. And on Canto Bite, we see the slave kids and the animals, presumably, if you like which I don't find that particularly strong, but okay. Yeah. And they're more they're more nobodies. Now, in the first film, we did see Ray as a nobody and as not a slave, but near enough. Um, similar situation. But because it was Star Wars, we expected, and right the way through to sitting down to watch this film, we continued to expect that Ray's way out of that life would be to do with being somebody, having certain parents, a lot of people were theorizing, or having some you know, unique connection to the force that's about the, in a way that makes her a somebody, but no, her way out of it was that she herself is a somebody like Ray, the character as played by Daisy Ridley. The actor is just someone who is a strong personality, a a character we connect with like, by the way, Luke was in the original film before the second film, like retconned him into having this chosen one blood. So when it gets to the point where Kylo says you are nothing, the context of that statement has been changed because now we know that nobodies are exactly the sort of people who will be rising up in this series. And like just some like being a somebody doesn't necessarily make you the protagonist. And if we don't know that, then the last shot of the film confirms it with the, the kid who you know force pulls the broom towards himself. Um, and so... Yeah, that, I, I as far think, as I've got, presumably it, there's more to it than that. But like, I think it yeah, feeds I, in, in that way. And I think that that's an answer to a question I wasn't asking when I went into the movie at all, because I felt like, yeah, well, who ge- who cares? Because to me, in Star Wars, 
it's never been like a family dynasty have force powers thing because right. my opinion, my thoughts and how how conceive the Star Wars universe is so colored by the games that I played in oh. the 90s because there they follow the anyone can has can have force powers and it can manifest at any point in your life when you don't expect it like well honestly the... i think i think you're absolutely right there and yeah. i think that this i think this film was the films going you know agreeing with that but if it had just done it out of nowhere it would kind of be a retcon so they had to introduce the concept and i, I think it, honestly it, that it, might be uh, that you you may there have, have really hit upon one of the big problems with this because i don't know those games or extended universe novels and so on very well yeah because uh except the 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 uh Jedi Knight games the dark forces the first one was just a straight up shooter with uh lucas art style cutscenes so you had long like 2 reanimated cutscenes with like a full satisfying story <laughs> in first person shooter in like I don't know, 94, 95, and it was good. And the main character had no force powers. And then in the next game, it's about him discovering that he can go on the path to become a Jedi. So the first half of the game is just a straight-up shooter. And then hours into it is when you get the lightsaber and you start getting force powers because it's a long runway to him actually becoming a Jedi. And all... So when people were speculating that, oh, we're going to have the character family connection, I felt like when all that speculation was going on, I felt like, yeah, that's a stupid person's version of Star Wars. That's how it's going to play out. Because if, uh, I don't know, Alex Kurtzman and Ortsy uh, were writing it, of course, that's how they'd do it. They'd they'd go with the most stupid route of having, oh, it has to be family connections. So when we had the scene when uh, 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 Kylo says, to her that she's nothing i felt like yeah good <laughs> this is exactly what i want because this is actually what star wars is to me so i didn't feel like maybe to a new generation you need it's more meaningful and more powerful when you establish the kids whereas i always took it for granted that that's how star wars worked well that's that's yeah that's all well and good but it means that mm. you know we've we've always known that the games were more in like the good ones were yes. more intelligently written like you know nice the old republic and so on that's that's more intelligently written than a lot of the films and i guess this is the films catching up with that yeah i, I first it was a res- direct response um to uh, internet speculation to like clarify could be yeah. could be yeah um I, I, yeah or rather i i feel like the Racings stand on their own in a way that I didn't feel the connection to the casino sequences really, apart from broad yeah. strokes world building and establishing uh, what will I happen. I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. And a lot of um, a lot of what I've just said, like I had to think about it and I had to watch it more than once to say that. Like, yeah, I, the the first time it was, I, I it didn't occur to me before I heard other people say it that I should dislike the Canto Bite scenes. But yeah, I definitely didn't connect with them in the way that I did with the Ray scenes. Yeah, um, and I, I feel the second time I watched it uh, now is uh, the, the casino sequence. It's like, I'm fine with them going to the casino. I'm just, I just think that everything that happened there should have been different. 
Yeah, and actually, and also, I'll confess to um, something that affected me during uh, *Phantom Menace* as well, which is a film that, like, you know, it it's trendy to dislike it. I do dislike it, I'm afraid. Um, but when I was first watching it, I was what was I 18 or whatever I was, and I sat there assuming that it was good <laughs> because I didn't know enough about Star Wars. And I assumed that that was why I hadn't the first idea what was going on and couldn't connect with any of it and wasn't particularly interested. Um, I had a similar thing. Um, I mean, Phantom Menace is entertaining. It's just really stupid. It just it's draggy in the middle. The, the kind of the Tatooine sequence goes on for too long. But apart from that, I mean, it, it's an explosion of stuff that happens. There's fantastic music. It's such a lavish <laughs> production and. Okay. Even the pod race. I even like the pod race. Yeah. Even though it goes on for really long, it's just oh here's he just cramps the frame with so much shit that sometimes it's fun and entertaining and uh, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. If you like. Well, the reason I bring it up is that um, when I was watching um, when I was watching this film. I kind of let the 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 because 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 the by the way I'll criticize the um, the Canto bite scene, which is that I think some of the editing is a bit off. I think it there are bits where it it'll drop in a a joke that doesn't land, or there'll be it 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 drags in various ways. Um, and I confess that at the time I assumed that that was in some way an important like Star Wars thing that Star Wars fans like. Because I feel the same way about the middle section of Empire Strikes Back, mm. where you have the import. I actually think it mirrors this very closely. You have the scenes that I actually connect with, which is you know Luke and Yoda. Yep. And during it, there's this like endless, tedious section of everybody else just kind of knocking about in a cave that turns out to be a worm. And I've never quite understood the appeal. Of the majority of that film, either. Yep. So I sort of same I here. Actually, I, it wasn't my favorite movie when I saw it. It's only afterwards when I see scenes that people love in *Empire Strikes Back* in isolation, I can see yeah. it. Oh, this is a wonderful put together scene. It's just that I don't I particularly ever want to rewatch the movie because the most of it is just oh, who gives a shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that part of me, uh, I confess, was like. Assuming oh, this is... that this that the fact that the Canto bite scene was this this long thing that was going on to break up the thing we actually wanted to see, I it... kind of assumed there was a Star Warsy purpose to that, yeah. or or not a Star Warsy purpose, but like it, it whatever was... film purpose it was that made people like it in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, it was authentically bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't mind it, and I prefer it. I'm I'm far more interested in the actual scenes themselves than I am in that bit in Empire. Yep, I think. So yeah, I have one final objection, and uh, it's uh, Ryan Johnson said that in the final duel he uh, did a force projection thing because he wanted Luke to die peacefully on his own terms and not repeat the Force Awakens death. Right. And uh, uh, I think I'm actually fine with the force projection. I'm yeah. fine with how all of it played out. I'm I really like his emotions when he's looking at the sunset and music. All I yeah. object to is the final shot of him fading out. I felt yeah. like it would have been perfectly in line with his character of him like 
resolving his past resentments, regrets with a confrontation, and then just living out his life peacefully on the island and never being heard of again. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't really... I, I assume that in the next film, which obviously they don't know what that story is yet, so that's, so that's not why they did it. I assume that in the next film, they'll come up with a satisfying reason why he should be dead and come back as a force ghost, because we know he's in it. We know he's coming back. Um, but yes, I'm not sure why they chose to actually kill him in this one, unless, again, it was to make that Han Luke Leia thing, which we're now not going to get. Yeah, I just, I just feel it was unnecessary to fade out. It, it, they kind of went in with the intent from the start that he had, was going to die. Yeah. So, like, every movie, there's, like, the, the central pillar of, like... This is the Han dies movie. This is what the Luke dies movie. This is what the Leia dies movie. Is that yeah. the trilogy here? So like, like now, you should have the character show up with a bunch of issues that they resolve with the young ones, and then maybe have them go off into the sunset and never be heard of again because it's the finale yeah. of the arc. I think that's and this just is, fine. And this is where I do. This is where I do uh, value watching people's reviews and so on mm. because i'm never gonna pick up on or understand everything and so i would be interested to find out if anyone has a good explanation of why thematically it was important for him to actually die and i and i don't know the answer to that yeah because i feel like you know this is just an, an idea they stuck onto and the way they executed it they actually made his death unnecessary they did i feel like they've resolve it in such a way that he should just be this ni- a nice uh, old man just living on the island <laughs> with the aliens that don't speak English. <laughs> well, perhaps it's that if they had done that, it would feel like, okay, he's still doing what, like, even though it would be thematically different because he has a completely different perspective now, mm. it would feel like he was back to doing what he did at the start of this film. So it wouldn't be like there was a great big... It would almost feel like he he messed about in the middle of living on this island rather than getting involved in the story. Yeah, but I, yeah, I feel like the reason for it, even though on the surface he would be doing the exact same thing he was doing at the start, I feel like it's just... It's important that the reason behind why he's doing it, instead of happily living out there, content with his life and his legacy, yeah. he was living there with complete resentment and like... Have, escaping it and you had the tree with yeah. the books where it's like he was hanging on to things not for letting go and that was cut off forcefully yeah whatever whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm i'm between on that one yeah um i quite like it but i can't really justify it and yeah that's not a question i can answer yeah yeah and, and then we have the final line how do we build a rebellion from this and leia says we have everything we need and i'm just Kind of confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not a yeah, it, yeah. That line doesn't really massively tie in with any of the things anyone has said so far. So it does. It, I mean, you kind of don't you when you're watching it. You sort of think, oh, I guess she means the people care about. But yeah, it doesn't really explain itself. Yeah, and then we have the final scene with the kids, which I'm glad is there because it's actually a better ending scene than the scene before it, where they said everything we everything we need. Because they will have the kids uh, with, uh, 
Anyway, yeah, I like that bit. And, uh, and uh, now my problem was that the first time I watched it, I didn't notice him. Uh, him, I think, uh, pulling force pulling that broom. I just didn't notice that, so I missed the whole point of that. And I and I missed like when everyone said the kid with the broom. I was like, I thought they were just describing, you know, that's because he had a broom. That's how they're explaining what kid they're talking about. I did note I, the in the cinema didn't notice that at home it was very clear i don't know why yeah i did note here that i took offense to what ryan johnson said in that scene with the kids he said oh, what that did he say? Uh, uh, the scene with the kids is proof that luke reignited hope in the galaxy and that the kids are inspired to go out into the world and join the good fight but i felt like didn't they already win the war in the last two movies when is the war ending <laughs> yeah um does he say that that it's like Luke has inspired things? Because yeah, I didn't get it, that. It, it, I thought it was that, like, I thought it was that the rebellion, or not the rebellion. What are they called now? The resistance. I thought that was an example of like when people elsewhere see that the resistance exists, it gives them hope, and maybe that hope is tied in with the reawakening of the Force, and it's what is required for people to start to use it. Um, I don't think it's got anything to do with Luke. Yeah, because. The, the toys they're playing with, they're, they're re, reenacting the scene from uh, Luke's confrontation with Kylo Ren. Oh, yeah, you're right. Wait, yeah. so does that happen on Canto Bite? Yeah. Oh, see, that's what you are talking about earlier that I didn't realize. That's, uh, that's where they go, is it? Uh, yeah, it's the same kids who are attending the animals. Well, I know. I remember that on Canto Bite, but I didn't yeah, realize uh, they knew they... about Luke doing the thing yeah did they're play oh, oh sorry sorry we've been talking at cross purposes yeah. what i meant was does luke have his fight on canto uh, no, 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 no. planet isn't canto by right uh, no that, that's another planet okay cool so they've just heard about it through the, the yeah so they're playing with the toys reignacting the, the, the duel there with the straw toys and then the yes and uh ryan johnson says that it is proof that luke, luke sacrificed and reignited hope in the galaxy okay kids are inspired and no I, I think everyone read something different there. <laughs> yeah, that's a. Yeah, that's odd, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, even, even I, though I had even though I had forgotten that they were reenacting Luke's thing, that's still they they actually saw Finn and Rose, and you would have thought that they would have inspired them. Yeah. Unless I suppose you could say that like Finn and Rose introduced to them the concept that the that the resistance is a thing and then luke shows up and does something amazing and that is the cherry on the top but yeah it's not really necessary yeah rose introduces herself at, oh don't worry we're the resistance and she shows them the kids the ring so the yeah. kids already know about the resistance yeah i think she gives him the ring i think he's got the ring at the end oh yeah i just thought they had an identical ring but yeah it's probably the same ring Oh, it could be a, an identical ring, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I just I don't remember. Can't remember. It's yeah. one of those. It doesn't really make that much of a difference. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. You uh, see, I agree with those. Yeah. Uh, you've brought up a lot of things that I agree with. It just doesn't doesn't affect the fact that I really liked it. Um, yeah. Certainly, the 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 thing that we were talking about before, not because you were bringing it up, but because the. Um, Red Letter Media were bringing it up is the the retooling of it as as like a comedy structure that didn't bother me either. I quite like that. And the, yeah, uh, and when I watched the second time, yeah, I didn't care about it either. It's just the first yeah. the execution of many scenes was bad, and the 
casino sequence in particular where I felt like it it, it raised questions yeah. about like what were they thinking here? I wish there was a scene earlier that was a bit longer that explained the reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In general, just everything that wasn't Ray and Kylo Ren and Luke feel like it's just middling or confusing. I don't understand what they were thinking. And I felt like the commentary track answered the question for me because that was just the stuff that was good was the stuff that he was challenged on to make good and have like a personal thematic depth to him to pull something from his own life there into the character motivations. So I felt Mm -hmm. like the scenes were playing on multiple levels in those scenes that he cared about the most. Yeah. And I just wish he would have been challenged in the same way by that guy I can't remember the name of. (laughs) (laughs) He should have a greater creative input here. And because he's Kathleen Kennedy's friend that she trusts and has good judgment on this, so she brings him in to challenge filmmakers that she works with to add some extra depth. Yeah, bring that guy in more, like, a bit later in the script writing process so he can sift through the script and ask some questions just about what they were thinking here. Uh, Yeah, fair enough. Yep. Perhaps they should, perhaps they will. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting film, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, this just confirmed to me how much I enjoy commentary tracks for movies. Oh. Because they're the, absolutely the best way to get a sense. Like, making up materials is always narratively structured to push some sort of thing that you want to tell. Yeah. Whereas commentary tracks is just free-flowing, uncensored take from the film creators. So if you have a movie that you think is bad or you think is good or whatever, you can just hear the uh, person who made it r- talk about their what they were trying to do and often it's like different interpretations of it or you can get insight into the creation of it in a different way that you never get from uh, making of materials and especially not from film analysis people because again actually re-watching the movie and then watching it with a commentary track i was surprised by how terrible YouTube critique videos are by people who watch the movie like five times and then I watch the movie and it's like, why didn't you bring this up? Which is something that you kind of jumps out at me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, uh, the uh, Ryan Johnson, when he talked about the production of the movie, in many cases, it illuminated how chaotic the filmmaking process is in a way that mm. people don't realize. Because the right. way he talks about uh, the reshuffling of scenes where uh, earlier in the film, many scenes, all the cutting, the, the, the structure of the story was changed kind of dramatically in the editing. And the way uh, the opening text crawl, he was uh-huh. editing it as late into the process as he possibly could right up to the point where he was practically kind of thrown out of the studio used up all the time he could right into the last second editing the opening text crawl so when people critique movies you usually get the impression that people think that a movie kind of is conceived of and then that conception kind of set in stone and then everyone just films the vision and what we get is a 
100% confidently crafted story, whereas it's actually it's a chaotic jumble that's edited and remade and changed up until re- as late as it possibly can, and then they just put the movie out as is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it explains... It explains the director's cut as a phenomenon because yeah. there are so many factors that go into why a film is edited the way it is. And although there's plenty of director's cuts where it's actually not as good as the final film. Um, so some, so it's not as if those are automatically bad forces or anything, but a lot of them are not always necessarily to do with storytelling. Yeah. There are director's cuts of movies that I think just make the movies unambiguously worse. Some mm-hmm. of my favorite examples are Alien 1 and Alien 2. Uh, Alien 1, the director's cut, just nonsense. <laughs> First time it came out, I was uh, a bit on the fence. It's like, oh, this is different. Uh, right. Not sure. But now that I've watched the movie multiple times with the director's cut and the original, it's like, the director's cut is just trash. You have to throw it in the bin. It's pointless. Um, <laughs> Alien 2, that was full of fan service for nerds in the director's cut because it's like 50 minutes longer of just expanded world building. So much cool production work stuff. Such an awesome for a fanboy, the director's cut of Alien 2. But as a film, as a story, it's, it's worse. If anyone watches the movie for the first time, don't watch the director's cut. If someone is a fan of Alien 2 and wants to show it to a friend who hasn't seen it, don't show them the director's cut. Show the theatrical (laughs) cut. That's the best story. Because I noticed this when I showed it to a friend who had never seen the Alien movies. I showed him the director's cut of uh, Alien 1 and Alien 2 as the first viewing. And in Uh both cases, I felt like I made a horrible mistake. (laughs) Right. And and I think that my I think I've only seen the director's cut of Alien 2 um, because now this is an old memory but isn't it the case that they cut out like the motherhood theme from Alien 2 by like cutting out a lot of the stuff about the little girl and so on presumably something is lost that way no all the motherhood stuff is in the original oh did they cut it out of the director's cut is that what I'm thinking of no the director's cut it's um, it's just more more cruft <laughs> right. Oh, it's well, just a bunch, a bunch of extra stuff that's cool sci-fi stuff that adds nothing. <laughs> it doesn't right. detract. It just makes the movie longer. As we're like, yeah. oh, here's the turrets, the automated turrets. Here's how the aliens were kept at bay before they figured out a different way to crawl in th- through the roofs. But in the original cut, they just show up crawling through the roofs. Yeah, yeah. Well, in that case. I ought to watch them again because I've never quite seen the appeal of Alien 2. Uh, it didn't really strike me. And maybe that's why. I yeah, I, I think cut. that might be why. Because everyone who loves Alien 2 saw the original cut first. Because I think that's a yeah. fantastic movie. And that's a director's cut. It's, it's a fanboy mistake to show that to everyone. Because that that's the fanboy edition. Right. That, that's right. the expanded universe cut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, then we have something like Expendables. The the only good Expendables movie is the first movie. And uh, the only good version of Expendables is the director's cut of Expendables. Because that's a... 
I bought the director's cut of Expendables 1 because I was really interested because it had Sylvester Stallone's commentary track. And I was fascinated oh, wow. by what would it be like to have Sylvester Stallone do a commentary track for a movie. And uh, he talked about it like how the movie was ruined by people's meddling. It Because the original version of it is the director's cut. It, it was like he wrote the movie and directed it. Uh-huh. And he had full confidence and put a lot of thought into the original version. But then producer meddling and um, advice from people he liked. He got a lot of varying inputs that made him lose confidence in his original version. And that's right. how the theatrical cut ended up. Right. And it's a m- mediocre film. because And in the original, it's much less conventional and more artistic and indulgent in having like a multiple minute musical interlude of everyone just relaxing after a mission and cuts of people not talking and doing anything with music over it it's very different whereas the the theatrical cut is just a bad conventional action movie and whereas the original that's how i remember it yeah and in the director as a as a well i wouldn't say bad because i don't watch many of them but like the sort of film i'm not interested in just an action film yeah a straightforward just ordinary film whereas the director's cut is it's diverges in many ways that makes it unconventional and feels more like a artist driven someone personal saying something personal here right and that's how we conceived it originally and that's why i was disappointed in Expandables uh, because yeah. Rambo uh, 4 felt like a weirdly personal film, which again was written and directed by Sylvester Stallone. And I love yeah. that movie. And that's why I was interested in having a director's cut of Expandables. And yeah. it, it made all my hopes and dreams for that movie come true because it's, <laughs> it was more like Rambo 4. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So anyway... We've been uh, talking for a while, but I feel like it was worthwhile because we uh, can. Uh... So you would you would you watch the director's cut of the Last Jedi? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I if... mean, I would because I'd find it interesting. The I mean, I there's a well actually I ought to clarify. There's a difference, isn't there, between director's cut and like when we say that we think oh it would have more stuff in it or more of what they filmed or whatever. I suspect that the one we've got is the director's cut in this particular case. But I do know that there's at least one deleted scene that would actually address something you brought up and would perhaps address something, some, some general criticisms, which is that there is a bit, you know the bit where uh, Finn is leaking, he's in that suit, he's just woken up, all the water's squirting out, and yep. he talks to Poe and he goes, where's Ray? And it cuts. There is a deleted scene, presumably deleted so that they could do that cut in which Finn explicitly says to Poe, oh yeah, I haven't joined the, the Resistance, I'm just trying to survive. Like, he ex- states that, which would make his journey so much more invited. Because, yeah, as we started the film, we all kind of just assumed he'd already made that step. And uh, I suspect they cut it out because they thought that they were stating the obvious, but it wasn't obvious. No, Uh th- it was ab- absolutely helped the film having a 
uh, recut version, maybe you kind of reshuffle the order of the scenes and adding some little moments that were cut out so you sharpen and clarify character um, intent so it's easier to follow follow along for people like me who are just sitting there even on the rewatch being just confused by like what's the point of this what's the yeah. character what am i supposed to interpret here <laughs> yeah and yeah. you know i do think that i watch films in a more shallow way than that i honestly mm. do i think i i think i'm way more in the moment and just like do i like this now and so in the case of the canto bite scenes it's like i like this because i like finn and rose and i think their actors are good you know what i mean mm. what rather than like how am i how am i connecting this to the wider like motivations of this and that i, I basically don't do that yeah and, that, and, and i know this is that presumably is a failing of mine but it does make films more entertaining <laughs> i noticed with myself that i for me it's on a film by film basis with right. some films i expect a lot with other films i'm just fine going along with the scenes as they happen in the moment it's very inconsistent that's why i don't feel like it's a valid thing to say it's a you should leave your brain at the door it's like oh yes, no, yeah. sometimes that happens sometimes i'm willing to go along with it sometimes not and i have no idea what the prerequisites are for me uh walking into a movie with expectations one way or the other or what yeah. makes me latch onto or reject other things it's a very it's just filmmaking it's yeah. filmmaking isn't it it's all of the it's all of the careful decisions that are hidden in a good film um and like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I know, I know all about that. The the hmm. the when people say leave your brain at the door, they have to say that because the film they're talking about does not make you do it, and it should. Yeah, yeah, it's when a film doesn't doesn't bring you along. Like the the films that, and I've already mentioned Popeye. The films that I like that most people dislike, it's always because I was in some other headspace. And really, a film ought to put you in that headspace. And and if it doesn't, and it seems like The Last Jedi for a lot of people doesn't. And in fact, I'm very willing to, very willing to assume that I must have gone in with a certain amount of like, you know, I was already sick of angry internet nerds. And so anything that challenged that general viewpoint, whether I'd heard about it from them in, in pre-analysis like analysis or not or if it was just something i was noticing fitted into that general thing i would have liked something or been in the headspace to enjoy that thing already because of that it may well be that i enjoyed parts of this film in, in uh, it, like through spite <laughs> <laughs> it's perfectly possible yeah and i'm, I'm uh, trying to actively reject uh the being influenced by internet dickheads as hard as possible yeah. So I'm willing to just take the movie on its own terms as much as possible and not be tainted by like uh, yeah. that. Um, mostly, I think I've kind of trained myself that way after being incredibly annoyed by the Something Awful film forums and people's opinions <laughs> there. People <laughs> just lunatics on a forum. Like... At, there was a point where people were being like hounded out of the forum for saying bad things about Prometheus because the something awful film forum had decided en masse that it was a work of genius. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyway, yes, I, I've never been to that forum. It's uh, good. It, it, you you <laughs> discover a, a new world there that makes no sense whatsoever. Where it's like you think that oh, there's the Twitter opinions, there's the uh, the YouTube shouty man opinions. Then there's another hill. There's something off a film forum where it makes no sense whatsoever from any frame point frame of mind you have or conception of the world in any way you have. <laughs> yeah <laughs> right i'm sort of half interested now to go and read their prometheus thread because like i've never heard any support for that film at all let alone like to the point where it's like oh you're just bandwagoning if you dislike it yeah no that that's a that's a thread full of people just calling out morons for not understanding the work of genius that prometheus is right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Prometheus. That's another. I've been thinking about buying the uh, disc version of um, Alien Covenant because it has the director's commentary track by uh, Ridley Scott. Because the director's commentary on Prometheus is really good. I have that on Blu-ray, and that illuminated a lot. So I'm really? fascinated to see how he explains what he was thinking when he made Alien Covenant, <laughs> the sequel to Prometheus. <laughs> would, that was to be my next question yes okay that's the sequel to Prometheus uh, even yeah. even worse than Prometheus I seem to remember uh, yeah because uh, it's not a good sequel to Prometheus I think he compromised in order to satisfy people who complain about Prometheus so he didn't make a worthy sequel to Prometheus he added a bunch of alien fan service that oh. diluted the quality of the Prometheus sequel he was working on so and the alien fan service is bad alien fan service because it, it feels like he made it resentfully <laughs> right so it's just oh bad all around it's like it's bad for people who want the good Prometheus sequel and it's bad for anyone who wants the good Alien movie because it's too similar to Prometheus still. So it's... Uh... Yeah. yeah. And at the yeah, same... Yeah, no, I'm going to yeah. give all of that a miss. I don't care about any of that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, you have amazing acting work in it. So it's... Oh, uh, really? It's just a mishmash of like... It's masterful performance in service of something that seems completely thoughtless and made by uh, like someone who doesn't give a shit in any way whatsoever but on some level they are still because I wonder <laughs> then I wonder then if I might actually like it because I've got I've got previous on this I am yeah. far more likely to enjoy a film if the acting is good but the everything else is bad yeah. than if it than if it's the other way around yeah, because there are also individual just scene sequences that are without a doubt just showing that okay, this is a excellent actors in the hands of a extremely experienced director making a kind of sequence that is really hard to pull off, and then kind of afterwards the movie kind of falls apart completely. Kind of, but you have individual sequences that are super strong. That it makes it all very interesting. <laughs> right. These are some of the most interesting bad movies you can watch. <laughs> Something that's that, that's interesting, but not to the extent that it makes me want to watch him, is films where you have a good cast, but because the film is so badly made, they're not good in it. Um, and 
well, to a certain extent, that was one of the things we said about Tim Burton's Alice when we were reviewing it on Serious Disney's. Yeah. Because that's got a very good cast, although, you know, it's got a few offenders in it. Um, <laughs> I, I meant that as in of bad acting, but it's got Johnny Depp in it as well. Um, but um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the best version, the, the best example is the Star Wars prequels. Phenomenal yep. cast. No acting in it. Yeah. I mean, acting direction is really important. Because turns out I've heard people criticize the acting direction in the uh, what are the forty-minute uh, what is yeah forty-minute trailer for Cyberpunk because they changed the voice directors and everyone says that no, this is a horrible regression from the quality of uh, Witcher 3's voice acting. Oh, and right. they shock it up to the change in voice direction because it isn't the same people uh, as before. So it's stilted in a way that they managed to move away from before. And it's more typical of uh, good actors being directed poorly. People are kind of honed in on it being bad in a way that's similar to other productions that are bad in the same way. Right. And I'm hoping that CD Projekt Red uh, noticed this and uh, brings back the Witcher voice acting crew. <laughs> yeah. It may be too late for that, though. Yep. Anyway. Bye. Oh. <laughs>